You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Lin, author of The Twelve and its sequel, Treasures of the Twelve. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Cindy Lin is a former journalist with degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University. Before venturing into the wild world of writing fiction, she worked at Sony Pictures Entertainment and Disney ABC Television, chased breaking news stories for Nippon Television, and spent two years on the west coast of Japan teaching English for the JET program. She's written and produced many multimedia news features for children, one of which received a Peabody Award. She's the author of The Twelve and its sequel, Treasures of the Twelve. In this Junior Library Guild selection, the Zodiac Legacy meets spirit animals in an epic, heartwarming, own voices adventure. Usagi can hear a squirrel's heartbeat from a mile away and soar over treetops in one giant leap. She was born in the year of the wood rabbit, and it's given her extraordinary Zodiac gifts. But she can never use them, not while the mysterious, vicious dragon lord hunts down all those in her land with zodiac powers. Instead, she must keep her abilities, and those of her rambunctious sister Uma, a secret. After Uma is captured by the dragon guard, Usagi can no longer ignore her powers. She must journey to Mount Jade with the fabled Heirs of the Twelve, a mystical group of warriors who once protected the land. As new mysteries unfold, Usagi must decide who she stands with and who she trusts as she takes on deadly foes on her path to the elusive, dangerous Dragon Lord himself. I'd been a journalist for a long time, and then I switched over to working in entertainment at the studios here in L.A. I had started to get a little burnt out and was looking for something to rejuvenate me. And friends at work had asked, if you could do anything at all, and you didn't have to worry about making a living or whatever, what's your dream job? And I was like, honestly, I'd love to write for kids. It's something I've wanted to do ever since I was a kid myself. And there's a class at UCLA Extension that I've been eyeing, and I just didn't have the guts to sign up. So when I told my friends this, they dragged out their laptop, called it up on their screen, and then said, get your credit card, and made me sign up. So I took my first creative writing class. It was Writing for Children. It was a fabulous class. It was taught by Paula Yu, who is an amazing writer, television writer. She basically started us off on this path of always looking for story ideas. So I was kind of getting into the habit of looking around at just sort of everyday objects or the everyday around me thinking about what would make a good story idea. And it was right around the time of the Lunar New Year. The year of the rat was becoming the year of the ox. So there was something of that in the ether. It just popped in my head. My mother is a horse, so she would say, well, I'm a horse, you know, or like, oh, well, he's a dragon. You know what that means. You would hear this often in the Asian community where people would describe themselves as an actual animal, It just occurred to me, what would that mean if people had the powers of the animal that ruled the year that they were born? If you were an ox and you had the powers of an ox, what would that look like? It just struck me as a really cool idea. I thought, okay, you've got a bunch of kids in middle school. Are they going to their lockers and, you know, opening a locker with, I don't know, their special powers? And I couldn't 
I just couldn't connect with it. Like I, I, it what it didn't unlock anything in me. I was kind of stymied by it. So I kind of shelved it. And at the time when I was in this class, I was really focused on picture books. That was kind of the thing that I thought was my entry into children's book writing. I erroneously thought that writing a picture book would be easier. So I thought, oh, let me get my feet wet with writing a, a picture book, and I'll focus on that. And this idea, I feel like, would need a novel, but I don't think that I'm ready for that. And even though I had written for most of my professional life, I had never written fiction before, and I didn't know heads or tails of it. So I sort of filed it away. I was like, this is a really cool idea, but I don't even know how it would work. And I turned it over in my head a couple times, like, oh, okay, you'd have a bunch of kids with powers of the Zodiac. If this is a novel, then I'm thinking middle grade, because that's the age group that I love to write for. It's the age group that I identify with. In my head, I kind of always think that I'm 12. And I also remember that that's the time, for me at least, when everything I read really stuck with me. So there were books that I read at that age that I would read over and over again. And I feel like that's when you're really first discovering books. You're reading on your own for the first time, really. And that's when you get to decide to go back and read a section or skip ahead or read the book again. It's just such an age of discovery, not just of the story and the world that you're reading about, but also establishing a love affair with books. To me, that's the beauty of this age group. And also picture books, which I also love. But again, I just thought, oh, writing a novel just seems so daunting and realized I needed to take more. I was hooked. So I took more classes that were focused on just picture books. I took an introduction to fiction. I took a class where I learned how to write a scene. Those were all building blocks. Once I started, I just couldn't stop because I was learning so much. And it was so fun. And it was just for me. Once I learned how to write a scene, I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I could take novel one and try to see if I could write a novel. So I took novel one, and I remember the instructor, Leslie Lear, went around and asked everybody what their ideas were. And I started off by saying, well, I have a couple of ideas. I have two. The easier one, and she stopped me right there, and she's like, no, 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 don't go with the easier idea. Where's the fun in that? So that made me think, hmm, maybe I'll tackle the harder idea. Because the idea of writing a novel with just a wholly made-up mythology, I looked this up, and there really wasn't anything out there that had this premise, which was really exciting to me and a little nerve-wracking because I was like, oh, what if someone steals this idea? But I didn't realize how long it would take me to develop it, how long it would take for me to build the world, to learn about world-building, to learn how to write a long-form piece I had never written anything longer than 10,000 words, I think, before that. And that was nonfiction in journalism. So it was definitely new to me. And it was very different then. That book, this book has changed a lot. So when people ask me how long it's taken, I like to say that it's 10 years. It was 10 years from the moment of conception to publication. Actual writing time was less than that, but it really was like a 10-year journey. I took several classes where you start off with the promise that you're going to end up with a first chapter at the end of the course. So that was a good start. And through 
the class, I met people who would become critique partners, writing partners. And that offered structure as well, because then we were meeting outside of class once the class ended. And you gravitate towards people who I think maybe share the same sensibility, or you admire their writing. And so I was very fortunate in that I met some people who have become very dear friends. And we would encourage each other, meet periodically. I think at one point, I was meeting with my writing group every week. But before that, when I first started out, I tried everything. I would sometimes steal some time at work to write. I would write at home at night on the weekends. It was very haphazard. At one point, we had this little text chain going where every morning at 6, someone would wake us up with a morning text and we would all get up. Theoretically, we were all getting up and working. So I would write for a couple hours before going to work. And I did that for a really long time. I had no idea what I was doing. I basically was obsessed with finishing a first draft. And I thought, if I can just finish a first draft, maybe, I don't know, some magical thing would happen, like I would be happy or it's going to be great. I'm going to feel so great about myself. And I thought, if I can just finish, if I can just finish a first draft, then I'll, I'll have proven to myself that I can write a novel. It was like this elusive thing. I chased it for 22 months. And when I finally finished, it wasn't what I expected at all. Instead, I knew immediately as soon as I finished that it was terrible. And I didn't know what to do with that. On one hand, I was thrilled that I finished. But on the other hand, it was so far from my notion or vision of what it could be. It was so far. It was miles and miles. There was this enormous Grand Canyon between what I wanted and what I envisioned and what I actually had. And so I stopped for a little bit. Actually, I stopped for a whole year. It was just sitting there for a year because I didn't know what to do. And it had taken me so long to finish it. But I knew that I had an idea that I couldn't let go of. I knew I had something there that I really wanted to see to the end, whatever that end was. I took another class. I met more people that were able to meet on a more regular basis or a more frequent basis. I was really determined to try again. So I checked what I had. The first draft was already around this new concept of a mythological world. I wanted it to be Asian-inspired, obviously, because it's the Asian zodiac. And I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and I also love mythology. I adored Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia, his dark materials. Like, I loved all of those fantasy series, and I loved that mythology that seemed to be, it was like a, like these worlds had been around for millennia. It just opens up the imagination, and I wanted to attempt something similar. And it was fun for me, even though it was, it's super daunting, it's, it's a huge task. I'm in the middle of starting a new series and writing a new world, and I had forgotten how much work it takes. Halfway through this second version, I realized that it, I had it all wrong. So the story is about a 12-year-old orphan. She's born in the year of the rabbit, and she has rabbit powers. So she can hear the tiniest things, and she can leap far distances. And she has a little sister, and she has a best friend, and her best friend is born in the year of the tiger, and her little sister is born in the year of the horse and can run super fast. So there's all these really fun opportunities to play with you know, animal powers. And then I had this idea of this land where it 
was once protected by 12 warriors of the Zodiac. And that's kind of how I was able to enter the world of the story. When I envisioned it more as a fantasy world as opposed to contemporary day Americana where a bunch of kids were hauling their books around in their backpacks, I was having trouble connecting with that and then also these animal powers. But when I set it in a fantasy world, all of a sudden I was able to tap into that and my imagination sparked And then I started thinking, well, what would that world look like? And what would a world be like if people had powers and those powers were venerated? Then I came up with, oh, the rabbit warrior. That sounds kind of cool. Or the tiger warrior. So it all sort of started to come together when I thought of it in in those terms. And then it was like, well, okay, you've got this kingdom. And what if these warriors were no longer around? And what if... It was forbidden to display your powers. And midway through, I realized that this orphan character who was 12 years old, who had met up with remnants of the the old circle of warriors, so she was hanging out with a bunch of adults. And she had lost her sister and she had lost her best friend. At some points, she had her best friend with her. I mean, I tried a million iterations. But she was hanging around with a few warriors of the Zodiac who still remained. And at the time, the book was called Warriors of the Zodiac. That was my working title. If we go even further back, the title was Zodiac Zoo, which, anyways, I had her hanging out with these Warriors of the Zodiac. And then I realized halfway through, wait a minute, she's hanging around with a bunch of adults. Why aren't they doing anything? If they are supposed to be these amazing warriors, but then they're defeated and there's like a few of them left, why aren't they taking a last stand? And I thought, well, what if they were the warriors' apprentices? What if they were their heirs? And then it clicked, and I had to make a decision because I was halfway through my second attempt at this book. And I realized I could either start all over again, chuck what I had, or write all the way through to the end just from where I was and just age everybody down and then start over again. And that's what I did. So I wrote the second version all the way to the end, but it's very disjointed. But I wanted to do that because I feared that if I didn't, I would get stuck. I would be in this unending loop of starting and then never completing it. And it was so hard to complete it the first time. So I thought, let me just complete it, and then I'll go back and I'll fix the first half. But then when I finished the second version and then I started again, I found new things to change. So it became a completely new version altogether. And right around that time, I actually met an agent who had read my first chapter. I was going to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators conference here in L.A. every summer, and I was doing these manuscript consultations. I'd had people look at this book before I had submitted the first chapter already, but I decided to try again, and this time I guess there was improvement because I got paired with an agent, and the agent read it and loved it and nominated me for an award and then told me when I finished it, he wanted to see it. It gave me extra impetus to finish because then I was like, oh, I've got something here. I need to finish. So at this point, I'd been doing it for years and I was meeting regularly with my writing group. So I told him, I said, well, it's not finished and it's you know going to be a while. And he said, well, you know, it's okay if it's rough just send it to me when it's done. And I tried to finish as 
quickly as I could, but I still was a very slow writer. I know people who can write a book in three months. I mean, they can draft a book in three months. And I would love to be them, but I I tried NaNoWriMo, which is where you're supposed to write a novel in one month. And that was actually worse for me. It's like as soon as I had the pressure of having to write more than, a, I don't know, it was like 1,500 words a day or something, close to 2,000 words a day, it was like I froze. My brain locked up. I think I ended up writing maybe 50 words in a day when I was trying to do NaNoWriMo. So that really didn't work for me. And part of me wonders if maybe I'll try again at some point, but that didn't work. So anyways, even with the promise of an agent saying, I will look at your manuscript when it's done. I want to see it when it's done. I still took eight months to write it, but that's better than 22. The second time I wrote the book, it took me a year. And then the third time, eight months. So I was getting better, but it still took a while. And when I finished... It was polished, but it was a behemoth. It was so long. It was way too long for middle grade, even though it's fantasy. Middle grade is supposed to be 40, 50,000. If it's fantasy, it can be maybe 60, 70,000. My finished manuscript was 132,000 words. Way too long. And I knew it. I knew it was too long. It was complete, but it was way too long. But I sent it off anyways because I thought, you know, maybe he'll just take a look and let me know what I need to fix. And that'll be awesome. That'll be so helpful. That'll be feedback that I won't be able to get anywhere else. So I went for it. I sent it to him. I told him it was rough. And he signed me. It was kind of crazy, but he signed me. And he said, it's a little long, which is understatement of the year. But he really loved it. I feel like I really lucked out in that respect because I was prepared to undergo many more revisions, to cut it down. I didn't expect that he was going to want to work with me. I was hoping, obviously, but I didn't expect it. I was just hoping for some good feedback. That's when I feel like I really, like, fortune smiled at that point. So basically, he thought to send it to a couple of editors. But he was so excited about it that he ended up sending it out to quite a few more. And it was super exciting. And... There were some amazing editors who agreed to look at it. In the end, though, it was way too long. And I knew it, so it didn't get picked up. And I didn't want to give up on it, and he didn't want to give up on it. So I started all over again. Actually, what I did was I decided to invest the money to do it. So I hired a freelance editor to take a look at it. And the notes that I got left me catatonic for about four months. I didn't know what to do. They were very good notes. They were excellent notes. But when I got them, I pretty much was frozen because it's like all your worst fears in your head about your writing, they're in the notes on the page. So I had to think on it for four months. Then I started again. I threw out what I had. I got really good at throwing out stuff and rewrote it from top to bottom. I think maybe I used bits and pieces from my old manuscript, so maybe about 10%, but I would say 90% of it was brand new. And in all of this, during the whole process, I was just learning to not hang on to what I'd written, to be okay with throwing out stuff because I knew I could write more. I was also getting better at putting a scene together, figuring out what it needed, or I was just really learning how to write, to write fiction. And I also, in this time, as I was meeting with other people and reading their writing, I learned how to spot things or 
learn what worked in a piece of writing. So that was helpful. And giving feedback is an art in itself. In the beginning, I was terrible at it. I would be like, I couldn't put my finger on what some, why something worked or why it didn't. And I would spend a lot of time correcting people's spelling or something. You know what I mean? Just copy editing. Because I didn't know exactly how to give feedback that would affect the structure of the storytelling. And I'm not great at it, but I feel like I've definitely gotten better. That's what I did with this latest version. And that actually, when I finished it, was still long, but it wasn't as cripplingly long. It was still crazy long. That one was 91,000 words. It was still insane. But bless my agent's heart. He said, well, let's, let's send this one out, see what people say. And that's the one that got picked up. And I was supposed to cut a lot more from it, but I didn't. So I did cut a lot, but then I wrote a lot too. I think it was supposed to come down to 60,000 words. That didn't happen. The final version is around 82,000 words. But I also had cut a lot and then added more stuff in response to my editor's notes. And they published it. So, And it's interesting because I've gotten notes from people. I've heard about kids' responses to my book. So I've heard about kids who would get the book at 5 p.m. and then have it finished by 9.30. Like they would just gobble it up, which is amazing. Because one, I know it's kind of long. And two, that they finish it in one sitting or that they refuse to look up from dinner or that they stayed up late to read it. That's kind of amazing. It's also, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, my God, it took me so long to write this. And they just they just inhaled it, which is what you want. You don't want people to stop and be like, well, I put it down, which people, I did have readers. My old boss, his son was an avid reader, is an avid reader, and had read the behemoth one, the one that was 132,000 words. And at one point, he put it down because my main character, Usagi, who's born in the year of the rabbit, and Usagi means rabbit in Japanese, so I thought it'd make a cool name. But she's at the sacred shrine on the mountain, on the sacred mountain, and she's training. And I love those training scenes. I'm just like the sucker for those things. So I really got into it when I was writing. Like, for me, when I'm writing, I want to have fun because writing can be kind of torturous. So if you're not having fun, then what's the point? And I think it shows also if you're not having fun. So I loved learning about things and I tend to be, I tend to geek out over things. So if I learned about something, then I would want to put it in and I would just let myself run with it, obviously, because it ended up so long. So yes, I had this whole training sequence. It was like never ending. And the kid put it down. He eventually picked it back up and finished it and he didn't have to. But definitely there was something there that was stopping him. And I knew it, but I didn't know at the time how to fix it. It wasn't until when it finally sold and then my editor was like, yeah, this part drags. You got to trim it down. That I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) I have this little file folder on my computer. I work in Scrivener now. I started off my first manuscript I wrote in Word, Microsoft Word, and every time I opened up that file, it would take forever to open, and it would be loading, and then I'd have to scroll to wherever I needed to get to, and people were telling me about Scrivener, 
And I thought, well, it sounds amazing. Let me get it. But then when I got it, it was overwhelming. It was, it's kind of like Excel, right? It's so robust. You can do anything with it, but you can also do nothing because it's so overwhelming. I've taken classes in Excel and still can't barely, I can maybe do a couple things in it. Like I can do a thing that looks like a spreadsheet, but all the stuff with the functions, I cannot. So with Scrivener, I bought it, I tried it. I was like, ugh, I can't. And I put it away and I stuck with Microsoft Word for a little bit. But then eventually there's all these books out there and guides on Scrivener. So I was like, well, I already bought it. So I'm going to make myself read one of these and figure out at least the basics. And once I did, that was amazing because then I realized, oh, I can just break this up into scenes. Each file can be a different scene. And it kind of allowed me to like sort of break things up more in my head. And then also I could move things around really easily and I could jump around or I could do a search. It was revelatory. I don't think I could write any other way now. I could, but it'd be a lot harder. I just feel like it's now a tool that is indispensable. In my Scrivener files, I always have a folder and it says unused scenes and I'll just throw stuff in there. Then I don't feel too bad about cutting things. I don't feel bad about throwing things away. And I know a lot of people do have like a folder, you know, where they will just like cut and paste things if they're working in Word or whatever. But basically, you just never throw anything away. And that's something I was told really early on, like, don't throw things away. You never know when you're going to need them or when something might spark like a new idea. And it's true that I did rely, like sometimes I would throw stuff in this folder And I would feel bad about cutting it, but it would feel less bad because I knew that it was still there. So it wasn't gone forever. And interestingly enough, when I was rewriting and rewriting this book, I would look sometimes and be like, oh, here's maybe a good place where I can bring in that scene with archery in it or whatever. And I would go back and I would look at the scene or, oh, I wanted to do this magical tea ceremony or whatever. And I would go back and I would look. But more often than not, I would realize that my writing had evolved or that it wasn't as good as I remembered. So then I wouldn't even use it. So that was interesting to me. But it still feels like a security blanket to me to have that, to to know that it's there. And that's also been like a really revelatory thing for me. As I write, and the more I write, the more I'm learning, even if I don't feel like I'm learning, and hopefully I'm getting better. And the only way I can tell if I'm getting better is when I'm looking at some of the old stuff. But sometimes I will find things that I can use that are kind of like gems. So that's kind of how I got through some of the editing of this book. Working with an editor is different from getting notes from your writing group. It feels like there's more at stake because you know it's going to be kind of the final version. When you're working with fellow writers, there's a sense of play about it oh, why don't you try this, or this isn't quite working, or I'd like to see more of that. And it's all just stuff that you can consider, and you don't necessarily have to take those notes. Now, when your editor says something, it's a little different, which isn't to say that you can't push back or that you can't explain why you chose to write something a certain way, but it definitely feels like there's more weight to their notes. For me, when I first got my edit letter, and I had heard lots of things about this from other authors, like, oh, they can be 20 pages of notes, or, oh, you just want to throw yourself out a window when you get your edit letter. So I was prepared, 
I think that because I had gone through the process of hiring a freelance editor beforehand who had given me notes that were so extensive, that was a good experience in the end when I look back on it. Because one, it produced a better book that led to a book deal. But then also, after I got through that, my actual editor's letter felt manageable because I'd already done a lot of work beforehand. And I still had to do a lot of work, but because I kind of had a practice run, it was maybe less traumatic for me than maybe for some people. I've definitely heard of some people who cried or whatever. I did not cry when I got my edit letter, but I definitely had to sit on it for a while and think about some of the things that she wanted me to do. It was helpful to read it, absorb it, and then we had a phone conversation about a week or two after I got her letter. So at that point, when I had some time to think about it, to sit with some of the things that she had brought up or the ideas that she had, then I was able to respond, I think, more thoughtfully. I think when you first get the notes, the initial reaction of most people is maybe a little defensiveness, maybe. Not always. But for some things, maybe you might be like, well, I had a reason for doing that. And then it takes a while, but when they point it out and you think about it, then you can figure out a solution. I think part of the defensiveness in my view is maybe because you don't have an answer right away. So you're, you're already thinking, well, this is how it is. I can't see it any other way. I think when I get feedback and I know immediately that it's something that I can change, I tend to be more like, oh, okay, yeah, I can change that. I can come up with something else. But when it's something that you didn't even consider and you're being asked to change, then sometimes it's like, well, wait a minute, there's like a little bit of resistance. But when I sit with things, I generally am able to come up with the solution. And then when you come up with the solution, at least for me, sometimes it's even more exciting because you're like, oh my God, I would have never thought of this if I hadn't been pushed to think about taking this out or approaching it completely different, rewriting the scene. So that part is super exciting. It's really fun. It's a little bit painful sometimes because you are being pushed to think about something in a way that you hadn't before. But then when you come up with a solution, it's so much fun. Like that's, for me, the best part about writing. Like sometimes I'll be just writing at my desk and then I'll come up with something that it just feels like it came out of nowhere, but I'd been pushing in my head, like trying to fix like a problem or coming up with like some way to end a scene or whatever. And I'll come up with something and I'll literally sit there in my chair and do a little dance or cheer like out loud. It's very much just me amusing myself. But it, if I wasn't having so much fun, I, I don't think I could, I could do it. Because you're up, at least for me, I'm up at all hours. I work late into the night. I forego social engagements. I lock myself up at home, basically. I just, I'm in a cave and I'm basically just writing. And it's just me and the words and this world in my head. And who would do that to themselves? Unless they were enjoying it. And it was kind of like, okay, this is it. This is actually going to go out into the world. And I couldn't dwell on it too much. But it definitely gave it more import. And so I would be like, okay, I need to really consider these suggestions and getting these notes, coming up with solutions, 
cutting things that I didn't want to see cut, but ultimately I feel like the book is better for it. And ultimately that's what you want, is a better book. And now, a reading from The Twelve. The music was louder now, clearly heard by all, the drum like an insistent heartbeat, while the flute sang an invitation to the town center. Usagi hurried with Tora and Aunt Bobo from the workers' quarter toward the music, chasing after her sister and Jago. The little boy could barely contain himself. Do you think they'll be puppeteers? Or maybe jugglers? I hope so. It could be the tumbling acrobats from last time, Uma speculated. Remember the pyramid they made? Even a few songs would be a lovely treat, Aunt Bobo sighed. A crowd was gathering in the marketplace, where a life-sized bronze statue of the Dragon Lord presided, depicting a grim-faced man in an elaborate helmet and scaled armor. The sculpture had weathered to a dull shade of blue-green, including the bronze plaque on the stone base proclaiming the Dragon Lord's greatness. Usagi didn't know which stories were actually true and what was exaggerated, but many whispered that the Dragon Lord had powers of his own, allowing him to become larger than the sun or so small that he was invisible. Some said he could summon wind and rain with a wave of his hand, that he was so powerful that looking at him in the eye would strike you dead. A few even insisted that an actual dragon was at his command up on Mount Jade, Madaga's highest peak, and that was how he destroyed the Twelve. The stone base still showed marks where an older statue once stood, celebrating the very first warrior of the Zodiac from the province, Bulagan the Boar Warrior. Old Bulagan had been there forever, a symbol of the warrior's protection. Usagi remembered climbing on him and rubbing his boar's head helmet when she was very young, too young to imagine that old Bulagan wouldn't be there forever. Now a trio of traveling entertainers stood before the new statue. Greetings, Golden Tusk, the entertainers shouted. A young woman stepped forward and bowed. Thank you for indulging us with your attention this fine summer evening. We hope to make it worth your while. The young woman took up the drum and started a solid beat while one of the boys grabbed the snake box lute and plucked at its three strings in an insistent rhythm. The other boy played the first few notes of an old Madagian folk song on his flute. Cries of approval went up around the marketplace. The welcome song, Aunt Bobo sighed. It was a song traditionally sung to visitors, inviting them to the table for food and drink. It could get very merry, as there were two parts for men and women, and they would sing at each other in boisterous rounds. Singing in high, clear voices, the young woman and the boy with the snake box smiled, as others lustily joined in. Before long, people were singing in a call and response, their voices ringing through the town center, while glowering guards rocked on their feet, arms crossed. Most of them were either hooligan or from the other neighboring empire of Waya, so the song wasn't part of their tradition. Aunt Bobo linked arms with Usagi and Tora, and they sang at the top of their lungs while people around them began to dance, stomping their feet on the hard-packed earth. The warm evening air vibrated with raised voices and the beloved old tune, and Usagi felt every note, more joyful than she'd been in a long time. A scream cut through the music, and the singing quickly died. Usagi and Tora looked around uneasily in the silence. What happened? Aunt Bobo asked. Gasps went up from the crowd. Spirits save us, look, Tora said. In front of everyone, Jago was rising into the air, floating steadily higher. Eyes wide, he flapped his arms frantically as if he were trying to grab onto something, but it only made him move higher still. Mama, he cried. Something's happening to me. Jago, Aunt Bobo breathed, the color draining from her round cheeks. 
She tried to get to him, but Jago had already risen high above their heads and was hovering by the rooftops. Screams and shouts echoed through the town center. Tora grabbed Usagi. His zodiac power. We better get out of here before the guards start sweeping every youngling up. No, wait! I don't see Uma! Usagi frantically scoured the crowd, trying to find her sister in the chaos. Guards were running and shoving people out of their path, their eyes on Jago as he hugged the tiled roof of an old assembly hall. Stop right there, you demon freakling! bellowed one. Grab me a ladder! yelled another. Get the commander! brayed a third. Panicked, Jago lifted off again, swerving through the air until he landed on a different building. A dozen guards swarmed at its base, shouting. The entertainment troupe had quietly packed up and disappeared, while parents were snatching up their younglings and hurrying them from the marketplace, as if what was happening to Jago was somehow contagious. Other townspeople, enjoying the show, called out unhelpful advice. Fly higher! Fly away! See if you can spit on the guard from there! Jago flew to yet another building, while Aunt Bobo screamed at him to calm himself. But it was too late, for Usagi could hear him sobbing hysterically. Then she heard a familiar voice through the chaos. Don't be scared, Jago, Uma shouted. It's just your animal talent. In the midst of the agitated crowd, she stood unruffled, looking up at Jago with her hands cupped around her mouth. Jago, think of the twelve. Don't you see? You've got rooster flight. Tora followed Usagi's horrified gaze. What is she doing? She hissed. Spit and spleen, Usagi swore. She started for her sister, pushing past the gawkers, staring up at the rooftops, fear and anger coursing through her. Why, oh why, hadn't she kept Uma by her side? If Uma exposed herself as having powers, she was done for. On the steps of the guard headquarters emerged a tall man in armor, his breastplate and helmet streaked with silver lacquer. He took one look at the scene and began issuing orders. Get the fly nets, he barked. And you, send a messenger bird to the striker outpost immediately. Yes, commander. Guards ran to get fire cannon and load them with fly nets. They could be shot from a good distance, and when one landed on its target, the flynet would become stickier than a weeping pine. Jago would be trapped like a bug in amber. Jago, Uma called. It's all right. Look, watch me. She began to rub her hands, preparing to create a flame. No! Usagi tackled her sister, sending them both tumbling to the ground. Uma kicked and struggled. Let me go! What are you doing? I'm trying to help him. He doesn't understand. You'll get yourself captured, Usagi said furiously. We're getting out of here. Now, before you make things worse, she hauled her sister to her feet and dragged her away, ignoring her pleas, while half a dozen guards positioned themselves around the marketplace, mounting fire cannon to their shoulders. Jago flew frantically about, swooping from rooftop to rooftop, until finally he landed on the guard headquarters itself. Fire! roared the guard commander. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.